0: to the ICANN Podcast, a podcast about ophthalmology through a uniquely Canadian lens with my friend Guillermo Rocha and myself, Zederé Ziaí.
1: We'll share our experiences as ophthalmologists today and tackle some challenges we face as healthcare providers.
0: Hey Guillermo, last season was so much fun. Are you ready for season two?
1: I sure am. Let's do it, Saturday.
0: We have so much coming up this season on the ICANN podcast. We'll be diving into some fascinating journal articles from CJO with the authors of Cutting Edge Research. We'll talk with the residents about how they're dealing with education and learning to practice during the COVID pandemic. We'll also explore equity, diversity, and inclusion in our profession, and speak with the first ever chair of the EDI working group for the COS on how we can continue to attract diverse talent to eye care and to ophthalmology. But before we get into all of that, hey, Guillermo, how are you? I've missed you, buddy.
1: Well, it's been it's been a busy summer, Cetera. Eh? I mean, we all thought that this was uh, going to be over, but here we are, and uh, it's great it's great to be back with you co hosting the ICANN Podcast. How about you? How was your summer?
0: Um, summer was great, I mean, you know, in a way, it was so much easier than the rest of the year because we didn't have to deal with school, so I could focus on work and getting back to the patients. Our clinics were open again, ORs were opening up, and there was no homework to do in the evening. so it was really nice to be able to focus on um, on less less pri- fewer priorities. let's put it that way. But I agree with you, I can't believe we're still in this. When is it going to end?
1: Yeah, who who knows that? I think what we're doing is learning to live with this. And in fact, we we sort of ventured into visiting our daughters who are both in Europe, and we managed to navigate all the COVID restrictions and enjoy some quality time with them in a safe environment. And uh, I imagine for you now, the challenge is uh, what's happening with schools and with the fourth wave coming, and then at the same time, keeping your practice. How are you coping with that, Sarah?
0: Well, you know, it's only been a month since school started or less even, and we've been lucky. Two out of four of our kids have had an isolation period due to exposure at their school, but luckily it's been the eldest too. So we've just left them home alone <laughs> for 10 days. So ask me again, <laughs> Guillermo, on the next podcast, because if the younger ones get sent home, I don't know what we're going to do. We're going to have to get a new nanny or something like this.
1: I know, I think that's, that's the key in terms of, uh, of what's happening. And uh, you seem and you sound, it's great to to hear you so optimistic and so uh, uh, adapted to what's going on. Do you think that in your practice in the university with your residents, do you think that this is now an adaptation to this kind of uh, new normal? Are we just learning to live with this?
0: I think so. I do. I agree with you. I think we're in it for the long run. However, I don't think we're quite to our new baseline yet. I mean, at least within the hospital, we're still working on getting back closer to where we were, not quite exactly where we were pre-COVID, but we're still working on safely trying to increase numbers in clinics and the OR. I know it might not necessarily be that way out in the community, but there's a lot of red tape, as you know, in the hospital. Safety protocols protocols are really, um, really advanced and very particular and specific. So um, I do think it's going to be, these. some of these changes will be long-term, but I don't think we're quite at the best we can be quite yet. So I'm, I'm still, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Every week is a bit different than the one before. How about Hi. you? How has it been in your practice?
1: Well, in the practice, we've we've certainly adapted and we've we've reduced some of the original uh, measures that we had without compromising safety. Um, but we're we have a really good flow. We're seeing a good number of patients and booking and a good number of surgical patients as well. Protocols are well established in the hospital. and depending on the different hospitals, there's there's a steady flow of work and of service provision for our patients. So that has been good in that sense. I think what I do see, uh, on the other hand, is that kind of uh, constant nagging issue with overall wellness. You know, it's uh, the fact that that for a, such a long time, we were losing contact with, with people, the social contact. And now I'm beginning to see that changing a little bit. Fortunately, in Manitoba, we have a really good uh, rate of vaccination. And so I'm beginning to, to see friends again. We've uh, been organizing some dinners as well. And I, I start to feel that that is kind of motivating some optimism in, in, in our friends and our colleagues as well.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think just getting together with people really is having such an effect. You know, things we used to take for granted. I did go out for dinner um, a few weeks ago with friends. We sat outside, but it felt so unusual, Guillermo, to be out and about with people. And everyone at that on that patio was just kind of looking at each other in a very particular <laughs> way. Like it was like a, the brave new world, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I feel like it's, it's, a, it's, it's really inspiring that we've all been through this experience together. It was such a, it's been such a hard 18 months and we are slowly getting back to some of the privileges we used to have. And I think everyone um, who's, who's been through it is just really appreciating, you know, the little freedoms that are coming day, day to day,
1: Yeah, you know, uh, now that you say that, when uh, we were having dinner with our daughters and one of them said she was looking around at the restaurant and it was all the measures were in place. It was an open restaurant, but she looked around and said, do you realize that every single person in this room was on lockdown? You know, so it it kind of is the realization that we're all going through it together and, and we need to keep adapting and keep moving forward.
0: Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly the sentiment that I had sitting on that patio, and I guess <laughs> now what what we're dealing with now, and I'm feeling a little bit the weight of um, patients and um, people in general in the community who are not vaccinated, and I'm I am struggling um, to see how this applies or how it changes the way we practice. You know, I I noticed it today as I was doing procedures and. One of my patients mentioned at the end of the case that they weren't vaccinated, but I had just taken their mask off to put their patch on the eye, you know, and you know how we get close to people's faces. And so this is the new struggle now is where do we go? What do we do? What do we do now that not everyone's vaccinated? We're going into a new wave. There's Delta variant everywhere. Um, You know, it's it, it can still be scary when you think about those things, but hopefully we move forward.
1: That's right. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um and some hospitals have implemented the COVID testing at least 24 hours before they come into the hospital with the patients. Uh, this, this week, we've been kind of required to declare our vaccination status as healthcare workers. And so things are moving in that direction. And, and I'm glad you raised that topic because we actually have uh, Lauren Breacher, who's a lawyer, and uh, she will be talking to us about these the legal implications. And you know, we realize there's some legal implications. There's scientific implications, epidemiologic implications. There's so many aspects to this. Uh, I truly believe that the more of us that are vaccinated, the quicker we will be getting into a more normal uh, world. I can want to know what you think. Please send your comments on today's episode or any suggestions you may have for topics or features to communications at because SCO dot C A and we'll try to incorporate them into future episodes.
0: The ICANN podcast has been made possible by support from MD Financial Management and Scotiabank, proud financial partners of the Canadian Ophthalmological Society and Canada's ophthalmologists. Hi,
2: I'm Dr. Claire Chan. I'm an assistant professor. Of Ophthalmology at the University of Toronto, and I listen to the I Can Podcast.
0: So speaking of vaccinations, actually, Guillermo, I'm part of this big on OnTI, which is like a, uh, an email group mm. for all Ontario ophthalmologists. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen people. Um, ophthalmologists, my colleagues, mostly those who work outside of hospitals, posting about what do I do if one of my staff members doesn't want to get vaccinated? What do I do if my patient comes in and they don't want to wear a mask? And they're asking everyone's opinion. In the back of my mind, I'm a little bit relieved that I'm at the hospital because I don't have to Think about those things. I trust the hospital to make the correct decisions based on public health and legal opinion. But you're outside of a hospital. So tell me what you've been doing, because even when our colleagues post on Ontai, they get a lot of different opinions from a lot of different local people. So I guess, you know, everyone's just it's everyone for their own trying to do what's best for them. But what have you been Mm -hmm. doing in your practice, Guillermo?
1: Well, I, I've done that. That's a, that's a great point. And at the same time, while I do have my private office, I also work in the public system, right? So I'll start, I think, with the easy bit because in the pro- public system, in the public hospital, patients are screened when they come in. And if they're undergoing surgery, they actually have to have a COVID test, an RT-PCR test within 24 hours of their surgery, okay? So basically they have uh, the day before, they have an assigned time they go have the test. The test result is sent to the hospital, and they're cleared for surgery. So that's easy. And yet, in spite of that, we keep them with masks on, and I still seal the mask when they come into the operating room and uh, and try to minimize the flow of oxygen as well. And so that has not been an issue. And the office is different. Er- it- ever since the pandemic started last year, my commitment was to the safety of my patients, my staff and also a responsibility towards the community. So in that sense, we've kept screening at the door for symptoms. We've kept hand sanitizers as soon as they come in, and everybody has to wear a mask. Um, I've struggled with the aspect of asking about vaccination status because I don't think really we can um, deny care based on their vaccination status. But we're certainly very careful in terms of protecting other people. We even have a filter in the waiting room to kind of move the air around. And I wish, internally, I wish we could ask about vaccination status because there are several pockets in Manitoba where the vaccination rate is very, very low. Now, in terms of the staff, Um, I also think we have a responsibility to protect them. So that's why those measures are there. And I have encouraged them to get vaccinated. There was one person that was a bit hesitant. And so basically, I sat with that person and I explained the reasons, the scientific reasons. I said that I had recommended it for my whole family. And soon enough, that person got vaccinated. So everybody in my office, fortunately, is vaccinated. Um, i'm not sure we can implement that and i'm relying on the fact that all healthcare workers now uh, have to have a confirmation or a declaration of vaccination and and i hope that permeates into all the different uh, aspects of of our community whether it's a private or a public um, facility but but i have to say i am very adamant about protecting All those aspects and trying to convey the message and try to educate that we're not dealing with politics, we're not dealing with religion, we're dealing with a virus and epidemiology. And that's what we have to address.
0: I think that's great, Guillermo. I mean, it sounds like the hospital is keeping you guys safe by Mm -hmm. testing everybody. And is that for, are they doing that just for intraocular surgery or are they doing it for like ocular surface procedures? Do you know? Is it for any surgery?
1: So any patient that comes for surgery into the hospital, whether it's for uh, for a pterygium surgery, for eye surgery, or for bowel surgery, they have to have a vaccination status, uh, or sorry, they have to have their uh, COVID negative test, test, negative right. COVID mm-hmm. test, because otherwise that triggers. So for example, if there's an emergency, Well, then that would trigger a different behavior in the OR, right? With the time it takes to just have the anesthetist and intubation and clear the room, clear the air. So it's a different protocol if you don't know what the COVID status is. And that's why we do it that way. And, you know, interestingly, Cetera, that has actually prompted, at least me in my practice, it has prompted me to do a lot of immediately sequential bilateral cataract surgery. Right. So patients don't have to be swabbed twice. They come in yes. just once. Community-wise, they only have to go to the pharmacy once. They're not roaming around back and mm-hmm. forth and this. So it, it makes it easier, safer, we feel, uh, for everybody by, by making it more efficient in that regard.
0: Yeah, that that sounds like an excellent setup. And I it does sound like it's safer, not just for the other patients, but the staff at the hospital and the surgeon.
1: Exactly, exactly. Because then when you're removing the patch, like you say, or removing the drape, and then you're getting ready to put the patch, at least you know that that person tested COVID uh, negative the night Mm -hmm. before or the day before, you know, okay, that's good.
0: And does it happen often that you're getting a surprise positive, like the patient's asymptomatic, they're ready, you're ready, they're on your list for, and then you get cancellations? Does that happen regularly? I would imagine that happens regularly.
1: Uh, it happened, I had two situations, one where it tested positive, and they asked me and I said, well, no, the patient's." Is- not coming into the hospital right. because otherwise, why do we have this policy? And another time where the patient had not gone to get their test, and they asked me, "Would you be willing to operate?" I said, "Well, no." Right. Then why do we have this policy? Right. You know, so you either do it or well, or or you're better off not doing it, and everybody can do whatever. And so far, it's been good. Really, I have not heard from any of our hospital staff and my staff as well at the office. Uh, no one really has gotten sick from COVID, fortunately.
0: That's wonderful. I like, I like this solution. I'm, I'm going to write some emails tonight. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, because I mean, that way you're not, you're, you're, you're um, sort of still um, having a throughput of patience. With the adequate resources, but also in a very kind of at least safe environment where, where you have done your, your due diligence in terms of ensuring that the surgical team, the pre-op team, the nurses, the aides, everyone is, is safer because that patient, regardless of their vaccination status, right. has tested negative. So I, I agree with that. And yeah, it, it's a more of a hassle to have the patients go. And sometimes they forget or they don't go well, then that's it. They, and, and the problem is, yeah, if they're canceled, then it's impossible to fill that spot, right? right? right because right. they would need to have the test done.
0: Right. But it doesn't sound like it's happening that often.
1: Which no, is not at all. At least in my hospital, Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. And I think that's a wonderful way to kick off this season, who better to have on the show than a lawyer who can hear us all venting about vaccination rules, <laughs> vaccination laws, vaccination policies. So I'm really looking forward to this one.
1: Exactly. Likewise.
0: On this episode of the ICANN podcast, we have Lauren Breacher. Lauren is a lawyer with Eamon Harden in Ottawa. She represents and advises employers on all matters relating to workplace law.
1: Well, hi, Lauren, and thank you so much for being here. This is the kickoff uh, to our second season of the ICANN podcast, and it's great to have you here because we have some very important topics to discuss uh, today.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Guillermo. It's really my pleasure to be here.
1: So as, as ophthalmologists, we work in different types of settings. We work at the hospital. We also work at our own clinics. Um, while at the hospital, most of the administration is handled by someone else. But for those, uh, like many of us who operate our own clinics, we're trying to balance the rights of individuals with the public health and safety of our patients. Are there certain legal aspects of the mandatory vaccination idea that we should consider?
2: Definitely, um, that's a really great question, Guillermo. Um, and now, before uh, getting into answering your question, I do have to live up to my reputation as a lawyer and uh, start by offering a few caveats. So, first of all, this is a rapidly evolving area of law, and there's still a lot that we don't know. Um, I also need to reinforce that the best legal approach in every case is going to be extremely fact specific, and so the information today that I will be giving, it doesn't constitute legal advice, um, but it will hopefully give you some good things to think about and to discuss with your legal counsel. Sure. Um, and now, and the, the other thing to bear in mind is that my experience is in Ontario um, and that's where most of my examples are gonna come from today. Uh, but to get back to your, your question, You are uh, perfectly correct to note that in hospitals, the answer is going to be different than in private clinics. Uh, So in Ontario, at least, uh, hospitals and certain other high-risk settings are subject to strict directives um, in terms of the mandatory policies that they have to implement. Okay. Um, The other difference is unionization. So um, hospitals tend to be unionized and um, many private clinics, uh, I gather, would not be. Um, and that difference alone, is, is it, it can be a really big one, um, including because unions can challenge policies through grievances
1: uh-huh. and
2: um, unionized employees, most, most of them have just cause protection, which means that they cannot be terminated from their employment. Unless the employer can prove that termination was a proportionate response to the employee's Mm -hmm. misconduct.
1: Okay.
2: Um, But in a clinic uh, that is operating in a non union setting, um, if there are no strict government issued directives that are coming um, or geared at them to have a policy about mandatory vaccination, uh, it really will be up to the employer to consider whether or not they want or need to have that kind of policy and you're right that the bottom line question for each workplace is really going to be finding the right balance between individual human rights and privacy rights and the employer's rights and obligations um, around workplace safety.
1: Okay, well, thank you for that very uh, very in depth response. And and as I was listening to your response, a couple of things uh, stand out. Obviously, the unionized versus non unionized uh, employees. Would would a private clinic? Um, benefit or have anything to do in terms of, of um, uh, work-related injuries? For example, if, if we don't institute some kind of policy in the clinic, whether it's for or against vaccination, um, are there any implications from workman's compensation, for example, uh, if, if somebody catches COVID as an employee uh, because we don't have a, a, a an established policy, you think?
2: Um, it. So, workers' compensation, first of all, it would depend on whether or not your workplace is covered by workers' Uh compensation. Uh Um, But certainly, there is an occupational health and safety requirement to take all reasonable precautions for the protection of your workers.
1: Uh Um,
2: As far as I'm aware, that doesn't necessarily require a mandatory vaccination policy. Um, And at least in Ontario, workers' compensation, um, the Workers' Workplace Safety and Insurance Board um, has has issued comments to the effect um, of, uh, you know, it's difficult to identify where a person um, developed COVID in in this current environment. Um, (laughs) and that there really would have to be a link to the workplace established. Uh-huh. Um, so so employers certainly do need to be making sure that they're following public health recommendations and taking every reasonable step. Uh-huh. Um, but does not having a policy mean that you would necessarily be on the hook if somebody catches COVID in your workplace? Not necessarily. Okay. Um, it would sort of have to be a fact-specific inquiry about, um, you know, whether whether you, generally speaking, were taking all reasonable steps necessary for the protection of, of the workplace.
1: Great. Okay. Yeah. I think that that helps a lot.
0: Wow, I really enjoyed listening to that interview, Guillermo. Thank you and thank you to Lauren. For more information and for the remainder of this conversation, please make sure you tune in to the next episode of the ICANN Podcast for part two about mandatory vaccination.
1: ICANN wants to know what you think. Please send your comments on today's episode or any suggestions you may have for topics or features to communications at cos-sco.ca. And we'll try to incorporate them into future episodes.
0: The ICANN Podcast has been made possible by support from MD Financial Management and Scotiabank proud financial partners of the Canadian Ophthalmological Society and Canada's ophthalmologists.
1: Thank you to the Canadian Ophthalmological Society.
0: The ICANN podcast is written and directed by Eric Johnson and produced by John Allaire from Allaire Strategic Works.